Well, good morning, everyone. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 149 as we continue our study of the Psalms this morning. Now, this sermon was written as a pre-election sermon to get ready for the election coming up, yet the Lord in His providence had our family quarantined uh, this past week so that we could not uh, be here last Sunday. Thankfully, Uh, None of us came down with any symptoms. We were just exposed to somebody that had a positive case, but we all were negative. So praise the Lord for that. And that means that our sermon for this morning now becomes the post-election sermon. And how we might respond to the results, to what's going on in our country. Now, To understand Psalm 149, we need to understand a principle that is at play in this psalm that is at work throughout God's word and throughout the history of God's people. Namely, that the most powerful weapon in the church's arsenal is worship. Worship is the church's weapon with its battle against this world. Let me give you a few examples from God's Word to draw this connection out for you. First, we see the basic principle and practice that in Israel, the priests of the Lord were set at the forefront of the battle as they would lead God's people. They would carry the Ark of the Covenant before the army and they would wage war by leading in worship. This principle is seen at the Battle of Jericho. When the people of God brought destruction upon this walled city, not by siege works, but by the blast of trumpets. In Second Chronicles 20, the people of God faced an enemy that they could not defeat. But the Lord sent word by a prophet that they need only trust the Lord and he would win the battle on their behalf. So the people of God responded. They marched forth into battle and we read this. When Judah's king, Jehoshaphat, had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise Him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas were in prison for proclaiming the gospel, we read that while in prison they prayed and they sang to the Lord, they worshiped God. And a great earthquake shook the prison and they were freed. You see, when the people of God encounter persecution or hardship from this world, their most powerful weapon is worship. Now, when we come to Psalm 149, the connection between worship and warfare, praise and battle is at the very center of its meaning and message. For God calls forth his people to bring about judgment upon the nations through the act of praise. So in verse one, it begins with the phrase, praise the Lord. Then it ends with the same phrase, praise the Lord. But right in the middle, verses six and seven we see this connection between worship and warfare exemplified. 
Look there at verses 6 and 7. It says, Let the praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. How are the people of God to affect the world for Christ and for His kingdom? How are we to be faithful to our call to establish justice in this world as Christians? While the nation of Israel as such was both church and state in one entity and therefore had the power of the sword to execute God's judgment, the church in the New Covenant era is spiritual in nature and does not have the power to force compliance and submission by physical threat, but only by moral or spiritual compulsion. And therefore, the weapon of our warfare is the sword of the Spirit, as Paul says, the Word of God. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness over this current evil age. That is to say, new covenant era warfare is spiritual, and therefore we must fight it spiritually. Christians execute the judgments of God, that is, the declarations of God of what is right and wrong upon this world, through a faithful proclamation of truth in worship. What weapon do we Christians yield against the overwhelming forces of evil? Not the sword of iron, but the sword of the Spirit. Not siege work, but trumpet blasts. Not commandos, but priests of God. We have been given the weapon of praise. And what we will see in our psalm for this morning is that if we would be faithful to God's call in our life for this generation, we must take up the weapon of worship. So hear now the word of the Lord, Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all His godly ones. Praise the Lord. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come now to Your Word and we ask, O Lord, that You would send forth Your Spirit and power upon us. We thank You that You have so graciously given to us Your Spirit that we might see and we might understand. And we pray, O God, that You would be active in the hearts of Your people even as You are active in the preaching of Your Word, that we might be changed and that we might march forth into this world Proclaiming your glory and your praise through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Psalm 149 begins with this command that we sing a new song, a new song 
to the Lord. Again, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. Throughout the Psalms, we run across this command to sing a new song to the Lord. And yet, we miss the point if we think the Word of God is calling us to sing to Him a novel or a contemporary song. A song that is temporally new. Not that there's anything wrong with temporally new songs per se, but rather the reference to a new song is to a song of victory in battle. In Exodus 15, the people of the Lord have just del- have been delivered from the Egyptians through the crossing of the Red Sea. Their foe has been thrown down by the power of the Lord in the great waters of the ocean. And the people respond by singing a new song to the Lord because he has brought them victory. When Hannah was given her son Samuel, she sang a new song unto the Lord. And in Revelation 5, We read of the heavenly song of the Lord's redemption in Christ. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. You see, a new song is a song of praise that proclaims the Lord's victory over our foes. God's triumph over an enemy that we cannot defeat. It is a witness that is the Lord who wins the battle. It is the Lord who acts to establish what is right and good and true in this world. The nature of the song is new because God is not abstractly fighting battles of His people in time primordial past. He is not merely winning battles for the Hebrews at the Red Sea or for Israel at Jericho or for Jehoshaphat against the Moabites. A new song means that he continues to win victories on behalf of his people even today. He continues to wage his holy war as his people go forth and praise him. His truth is marching on. And we... We denigrate the name of God when we attribute any real victory and advancement of the kingdom of God and of its justice to ourselves or to any human being. For it is the Lord who fights our battles. It is the Lord who will get the victory. Again, when I wrote this sermon, we did not know who the victor would be in the presidential election. And even though it looks as though Joe Biden has won the election, we cannot direct our praise towards one man and one man alone. We must look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must join with the heavenly hosts and sing a new song to the Lord Jesus Christ, for He alone will win the true battle that we are fighting in this world. Now, we all know that the early church, when it began, met much opposition from worldly powers, particularly the Roman Empire. But why were the Romans so hostile to the early church? Rome seemed willing enough to allow a diversity of religious practices within their empire. They were not forcing conformity across all their provinces. So why did Christians in particular come under such persecution from the state? 
Well, the biblical historical examples teach us that the main reason was their insistence on declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ. Saying that Jesus was king. Jesus is Lord. Oh, no, 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 says the Roman state. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is king. The proclamation of the kingship of Jesus Christ was viewed as a threat to Rome. For the state will not tolerate rivals to its authority, especially from some Johnny come lately from the backwater province of Judea. Practice your religion as you like, as long as your ultimate allegiance is to the state. Our forebears in the faith face the same tension in 17th century Scotland. These Presbyterians proclaim the only head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet the British monarch had set himself at the head of the church and demanded that these Presbyterians submit to his right to rule the church in his lands. And in response, these Presbyterians covenanted together and resisted his affront to the kingship of Christ. And many ministers were ejected from their pulpits. Many people were ejected from their land. Many paid with their own lives because they declared that Christ was the head of the church and no one else. And yet it was through their battle that the traditions, the tradition of separation of church and state began to take form. Samuel Rutherford, a Presbyterian minister at this time, wrote in response a book called Lex Rex, which means the law and the king. The law is over the king. And this work laid the foundation for John Locke's political theory of social contract. And John Locke's work, as you know, provided the formative political ideals that shape the founding of our nation. So so closely connected in the mind of the British monarch were the movements of the Presbyterians in the 17th century and the American Revolution that he labeled the American Revolution the Presbyterian Rebellion. One historian even noted that he did this because the term Presbyterian carried with it a connotation of anti-myarchical rebels. Why? Because Presbyterians, along with all faithful Christians, worship one true king. And they will not tolerate anyone who seeks to usurp his power. The consistent persistent and insistent proclamation of the church is that Christ is the King. And to His kingdom, all rulers of this world must submit. And this is what we see in verses 2 and 8 of our text. Look at how these two ideas are brought together. It says, Let Israel be glad in His Maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their King." To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. You see, to worship the Lord as king is to bind the kings and nobles of this world. It is to remove from them, not their political role or power, which God has ordained that they exercise, but rather to remove from them their unrivaled authority over individual souls. For there is a higher authority. There is a higher power than the president or the king or the emperor. And when you worship Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, you do spiritual battle against the ever-present threat of tyranny. 
For you are declaring that there exists an authority that is higher than any earthly king. And by worshiping him and him alone, you are declaring your ultimate allegiance. And therefore, every Christian must worship Christ as their king. Now, one of the greatest allurements of the state and of its power is the promises that it makes of salvation. This year, the Biden campaign used the slogan, Restore the soul of the nation. In 2012, Mitt Romney encouraged us that we are to believe in America. Obama promised hope and change. And in 1968, Nixon said, This time, vote like your whole world depends upon it. No matter who you voted for, there's always a sense that they will save our nation. The promise is, That by the power of the sword, we will force things to be better. We will establish a utopia here on earth. We'll eliminate hunger and poverty and drug use. We'll end inequality, crime and ignorance. We will legislate away climate change and dictate economic recovery by fiat. Not that these might not not be admirable aims, some of them. However, Christians must realize That while the state at its best might provide provisional help for the hardships of this world, there is true salvation in no one but our God. Look at verse 4 of our text. There we read, For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. You see, salvation will not come through force of arms. And no matter how a political candidate paints it, his only power ultimately is the threat of force. But the Lord brings salvation to the humble. This is the consistent refrain of God's word. Salvation comes to those who humble themselves before the Lord and trust in him. The Lord Jesus Christ said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so too does Psalm 149 affirm that it is the humble who receive salvation. When Jesus endured the temptation in the wilderness, the final temptation was worldwide political control. We read in Matthew 4, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. If you will worship me, if you will but worship me, I will give you control over all the nations. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. The nations will one day serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, they will. But the temptation that was brought to Christ was to receive the crown before enduring the cross. It was to be exalted before He was humbled. It was to take up the sword of iron before He took up the cross of wood. It was to worship Satan and the evil powers of this world and not to worship and submit to God the Father. But Jesus resisted. And He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
He worshipped and obeyed the Father and won for His people true salvation. Not the salvation the world offers, but deliverance from sin and death. For on the cross, He poured out His blood to pay the penalty for sin. And on the third day, He rose from the dead, defeating death on our behalf and opening for His people the way to everlasting life. He established the kingdom of God on earth, not by exalting Himself, but by humbling Himself. And therefore, every Christian must worship the Lord alone for His salvation. For we are tempted to give our praise to the powers of this world. We are tempted even like Christ was. We are shown all the powers of the world and we are shown all their glory. And they say, if you have political power, if the world would just do what you think is right, then you could establish utopia here on earth. And we're so disappointed when the world doesn't go along with what we want them to do. But we must not exalt ourselves, but we must humble ourselves. Knowing that as we worship God, that His kingdom will be established on earth. You see, we must not walk in pride, but in humility, believing that through Jesus Christ alone, salvation is won. We must praise the Lord because He is the victor. We must praise the Lord because He is the King. We must praise the Lord because He is the Savior. And finally, we must worship the Lord, for He is the judge. Look down at verses 6 through 9 of our text. It says that the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written, This is honor for all His godly ones. Praise the Lord. Now the word judgment means to bring about a division. A witness to what is right and true and good against what is wrong, what is false, what is evil. And to worship the Lord is a prophetic voice continually resounding the reality of God's judgment over the nation. It is the voice of John the Baptist who said to Herod, you cannot have your brother's wife as your own wife. It is the voice of Christ who said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And this prophetic voice continues in our world even today. Despite the ravings of postmodernists who proclaim there is no absolute moral norms, the very nature of man in the image of God says no. There is right. There is wrong. There are good. There is evil. The Nazis acted as though they could override the rights of the Jews for the good of the state. But the Nuremberg trials declared within a resounding voice in the 20th century. There is right and there is wrong in this world. There is evil and there will be a reckoning There is a judge. No matter what the Fuhrer says, no matter what the king says, no matter what the president says, they cannot overrule the judgment of God. And we Christians must not be found derelict in our call to worship the judge in his judgments. 
We must not give over judgment of right and wrong to the ever-changing tides of cultural and political movements. We must stand up and fight the battle before us, not by the sword of iron, but by the sword of the Spirit, maintaining day in and day out the worship of God and submission to Christ. Each of you who gather here this morning and proclaims not the worship of man, but of God, you are doing battle. When we worship God, we bring forth His righteous and true judgments. And the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And therefore, every Christian must worship the Lord as we wait for the return of Christ, who will judge both the quick and the dead, punishing all those who have broken His law and giving eternal life to all who humbly flee to Him for salvation through Christ alone. You see, the power of God's people is worship. This worship provides a check on the earthly powers of this world, even as it aims to establish the eternal kingdom of Christ. For the church always goes astray when it gives its moral authority over to the sword of the state. We must realize that some the worst actions of the church were executed by the state. The tortures of the Inquisition were dictated by the church, but they were executed by the power of the state. And this is why Christ rejected the path of force and rather took up the cross and humbly went to Calvary. And this is the fight that we have before us. We must put down the sword and take up the cross. We must lift our voices. We must sing our King's praise. We must march onward as to war as priests whose power is praised. And I know that today many of you are asking, what do I do now that the election is over? We must worship Christ as our King. For I know that many of you have political opinions and thoughts and desires for our city and for our state and for our nation. It cannot be very fulfilling for you to only express those desires once every four years by going and punching one button over another, filling in one box over another. Maybe choosing between two people that you don't agree with very much about. You see, the way that you express your desire for this world, the way that you do battle to see the things of God established here on earth is by worship. Now you might think that this is a retreat from the political realm. That in saying that, I'm saying, you know, we just need to cloister in our homes, we need to cloister in our churches and praise God and be blind to the happenings of this world. Put on blinders and just praise God and nothing will matter. That is not what I am saying. Nothing could be further from the truth. For to praise God as Psalm 149 calls us to do will affect the nations. It will bind kings. For the power of our praise will not be contained, but it will spread out over the face of this world as the waters cover the sea. And our nation and all nations will one day submit and they will join the new song that we sing to Christ, our King. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. 
Oh Lord Jesus, we come to you in this time. And we ask, oh God, that you would fill our hearts, you would fill our mouths with your praise. Lord, and as we look back upon the history of the church, we know that there are times and seasons when this praise is not openly confronted by the kings and the nobles of this world. And yet we know that there are times that it is. We pray that you would give us the strength to consistently and constantly, insistently praise you no matter the persecution that might come against us. That we might see your truth and your judgment come forth in this world. We pray this through Christ's holy name. Amen.